Heather and I have been coming to New Horizon for some 30 years. And of course, life changes a great deal over that time. And somehow we have acquired seven grandchildren in that time. And two of the five-year-olds, there only are two five-year-olds, Charlotte and Lucy, were discussing theology, as they often do, in the back of the car a couple of weeks ago on their way home from CSSM, Summer Bible Club in Port Ballantrae, which is a fixture for our family. And Lucy was relating how her daddy had shown her a photo of his grandfather and explained that he had died and had gone to heaven. And she added that she would see him one day because we would all go to heaven. And at that moment, her cousin Charlotte piped up that there was a problem. There's something very important you have to do for that to happen. And Lucy's mom, who was present, thought Charlotte was going to say that she needed to become a Christian first. But Charlotte said, you'll have to find him first. (laughs) This prompted Lucy to say, well, I'm going to heaven because I love God. But you know, there's a really bad place that you really don't ever want to go to. And Charlotte asked, where's that? Lucy replied, it's a place called Kells. My deepest apologies to the good people from Kells. Our reading tonight is profoundly connected to each of our lives because it relates the start of the long journey that leads through many twists and turns to our being here in the New Horizon tent tonight. It is the story of the Christian gospel, that great message of forgiveness and new life through Christ. It's the story of that message coming to Europe. Philippi was a small city. There were no mega cities in those days. And it commanded a strategic position on Rome's primary artery to the east. It was the scene of Numerous famous battles and many retired Roman troops settled here. It was a Roman colony and a very Roman city. Most of the surviving inscriptions are in Latin, not Greek. And the plan of the city is also very Roman. It had its fine public buildings, its forum, its theater, even public toilets. But as in the other cities, living conditions for most would have been very cramped. The population density, for example, in the city of Antioch is estimated at 130 people per acre at a time when there were no high-rise buildings. Very claustrophobic, always a, a risk of disease and fire. They had many different gods worshipped there. Plenty to choose from, according to one of their poets. There were 30,000 distinct deities in the Roman Empire. So it was into this urban world of religious pluralism and cultural and ethnic diversity 
that Paul and his friends came, the first Christians that we know of in Europe. It was a hugely significant moment in the pre-Christian West, the start of the first European church. And yet, as you heard from the reading, Luke's interest is primarily in the people. It's primarily in the three individuals that he talks about in the city. God is, of course, interested in cities. He's interested in whole nations. He's interested in big crowds. But he is also interested in people as individuals. Individuals matter to him. He knows each one. He knows their circumstances their hopes, their fears, the challenges they face, their families, their work, their travel, each individual story, your individual story. You may be sitting here tonight in this huge crowd and feel that nobody notices. You may be here on your own. You may be struggling with issues that nobody else knows about. God is interested in you. He knows your story. And the focus of Luke's inspired account is the complex series of events woven together that lead to the encounter between the gospel message and these three individuals. A businesswoman, Lydia, a young girl who was a spirit medium and the governor of the local prison. How did it happen then that Paul came to Philippi out of all the cities in the world? How did he come to be there? There's no record that Paul and his team had even thought of going to Philippi. Their initial plan was to visit the places they'd gone to before to see how the new Christians were getting on. And after that detail, we're not told precisely what they had in mind. But here, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit had intervened in some way to make it clear that they were not to go to Asia. Now, this was only a temporary block. Later they would go. So where should they go? Well, they tried to go to Bithynia. And once again, Luke tells us, the door was shut. So they went down to Troas, and there Paul had a vision. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So there were at least three deliberate interventions by God so that Paul would find his way to Philippi and meet a woman at a prayer meeting. It was not the only thing that God had in mind, but it was the first thing. God knew her name. He knew her story just as he knows your name and knows your story. But the other side of the matter involves Lydia 
herself. How did she happen to be in Philippi beside the river that day? She wasn't from Philippi. She had been born in Thyatira in the ancient kingdom of Lydia, which explains her name. It means the Lydian woman. And Thyatira was famous for its production of purple dye. It was a trade carried on under license. Only a few people could do it. Lydia was involved in it, and business had brought her to Philippi. Business was obviously very good. Being a Roman colony, there were plenty of people there who would want and could pay for what she produced. So she was able to own her own home and to run an entire household, a house that was large enough to house Paul and his team, as we later discover. But even with all that, she might never have met Paul, but there was something more, Luke tells us. At some point, she had become a worshiper of God. Like many others, she had been attracted to the core faith of Judaism, the truth that there is only one true God. This is how Paul explained this God in the next chapter to his sophisticated audience in Athens. This is what he said, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made with hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. The God in whom we live and move and have our being, this God is not like gold or silver or stone, not an image made by man's design and skill. What a refreshing contrast this God was to the 30,000 plus gods of Roman culture, creations of human imagination that was motivated by fear, most of all, and helplessness before the awesome powers of the universe. Because those gold and silver and stone idols were deifications of what people saw as the supreme realities of their life, the supreme powers that controlled things. And so they made gods out of them. These powers, either they were the physical powers of the universe beyond, or they were the deep powers that they felt within themselves, those great psychological urges, love, lust, anger, greed, envy. They made gods out of these things. They made idols of them. They developed all kinds of rituals and and sad, misguided attempts to try to get some kind of religious insurance in life to try at least to appease the gods, if not control them, to try to get the god to look your way. Something similar to the way a lot of people like to still have a religious ceremony as part of their wedding, even though God is no part of their life. But they're looking for any luck that will come their way. So they'll bow in in the direction of luck wherever they can find it, worshiping the god of luck and lottery and chance. 
That was the world that Lydia lived in. That was the world that she saw through. Idolatry is not necessarily what you love more than God. It's what you fear more than God. They didn't love their idols. They feared they were slaves to them. Slaves to that way of thinking where they had to work out how they could possibly appease the gods. And if there's 30,000 gods, how would you ever know you'd appease them? What do you do? Do you choose five for every day of the year and, and, and spread that out over all the years? And they got themselves into an impossible, superstitious slavery. Lydia had seen through that and was attracted to that core message of the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And we may look at that ancient culture and say, well, of course, we're much more sophisticated now. We don't buy to gold and silver and stone. Well, probably not, not here. But we bow to the same gods. The gods of chance and luck and love. Love is love, isn't it? And if love makes you do it, Well, who are you? Who am I to stand against the all-powerful nature of this love? Because love is a goddess that our society worships and bows down before. Lydia saw through all of that. She worshipped the one true God, not as some abstract theory. In the midst of her commercial success, she made it her business to seek God with all her heart, and she joined regularly with a group of women who prayed at a special place designated for prayer beside the river, seeking God, worshiping him at a distance. And God knew her heart, knew her story, knew her longings, heard her prayers unknown to her, had organized for Paul and his team through many different twists and turns of their journey to find their way that day to the river to meet with Lydia. Paul spoke to her. We're not told what he said on this occasion because probably because Luke has already given us lots of examples of the things that Paul would say, explaining how this God who created everything and knew her personally, could be known personally by her. Because in his love, he had come in the person of his son and sent Jesus to deal with that great barrier that separates us from a holy God. He would have explained to her, you don't have to become a Jew to know this God. God is now doing something new. He's creating a new people where people from every tongue and tribe and ethnicity can know God on exactly the same basis. This is the God I present to you. And as she listened, God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. This is God's work. This is the work of God's Spirit. When you know deep within that what you are hearing is the liberating truth. This is truth 
not as my truth or your truth or somebody else's truth, but truth as reality. This is the way things really are. This is God. God's Spirit opening our heart to see that, to receive the message. And she responded by bowing before this Lord and believing in Jesus as her Lord and her Savior. Perhaps God is opening your heart this evening. It's not an accident that you are here, even though you may think it is. Maybe you sort of woke up and you found yourself in a tent and we didn't know how you got here. I think that's probably unlikely. Maybe you fought and kicked and screamed and squiggled that you didn't want to come. I don't know the circumstances. Maybe you said to your friend, oh yeah, well, I suppose I will come. But deep down, there was something more. There is something more. It's no accident that any of us is in this tent tonight because God knows your name. He knows your story. And you know that the message is true because the Spirit makes it clear to you. The question is this. Have you responded Have you put that personal trust in Christ? As evidence that her response was genuine, she was baptized. And then she insisted that her home was put at the disposal of Paul and his team. Because you see, in the light of Christ, the pieces of her life suddenly clicked together. God had given her all this, this business, this home, this opportunity, this moment in history. It's not an accident. God has given me this. And it's obvious to me now the light has dawned. I can see the point of it. It all makes sense in Christ. Perhaps it was because she was such a good businesswoman, used to thinking things through logically and clearly. She saw that the gospel was not simply an extension of the self-focus of her culture. The gospel wasn't all about her, all about solving her personal needs and problems, all about providing her with personal forgiveness and private comfort and happiness. She saw that it encompassed the entirety of life. Paul didn't have to do what preachers sometimes feel they have to do to urge and cajole and challenge and browbeat. Maybe you think that's what I'm trying to do tonight. Uh, Try everything within their rhetorical arsenal to convince people that in addition to trusting Christ and, of course, looking after their career and their family and their hobbies and so on, they might, if they have some spare time and material resource, it would be a nice thing to get involved some way in the cause of the gospel. That he wasn't that person. It made sense immediately to her. This was what life was about. It wasn't that she stopped being a businesswoman. 
It was that everything clicked into gear. She wasn't herself an apostle, but she could do something for an apostle. Perhaps she wasn't a gifted evangelist, but she could do something for the spread of the message. She didn't make the mistake of living a divided life, a privatized faith on one hand and her business life on the other. If faith was real, then it would be real in the whole of her life. It would infuse her business, her ambition, her home, her friendship, her use of money, everything. And her home became the first base for the gospel in Europe. And we read later how when Paul was released from prison in Philippi, he and Silas returned to Lydia's home to meet with the church, which had now been formed there. If we follow history through its twists and turns, the decision this businesswoman made that night or that day at the river connects directly to you and I in this tent tonight. What decision are you going to make? Her story isn't finished. Luke's story isn't finished. He tells us about two other individuals in Philippi. A young girl being exploited by a different kind of business person, unscrupulous business people, for her fortune-telling abilities. Now, while there's a lot of sheer nonsense and gobbledygook mixed up in fortune-telling, the Bible is crystal clear that on occasions dark and sinister powers are involved. Jesus was clear about that, as was Paul. Evil is not just a concept. It was not a concept of evil that came against Jesus in the desert. It was a vastly intelligent, powerful being. This girl was possessed by a demon, and she dogged Paul's footsteps around Philippi. And Paul was not carelessly looking for unnecessary and avoidable clashes with evil, but the girl wouldn't stop. And he was concerned for her and disturbed by the impact of the evil spirit on her. And at first sight, you read the story, you might think, wow, what's he concerned about? This is free publicity. What's so wrong? But there is no compromise between the gospel and spiritism. And just as Jesus silenced the evil spirits in his days on earth, so Paul also silenced the voices of evil. In any case, he wasn't fooled by the religious language he used. What did the Spirit really mean by the Most High God? That was a common term that other religions would use for whatever supreme God they believed in. What kind of salvation was it? The evil one is a master at using spiritual sounding language to weave his subtle web. Paul silenced the spirit and released the girl. And her backers were furious. They had no interest in her as a person. They could only see the loss of their money-making potential. And when the gospel challenges and threatens the way people make money, as it does and should look out. Of course, they couldn't tell the truth and admit that 
personal financial gain was at the core of their opposition to Paul and Silas and their message. The local magistrates would hardly be sympathetic to that particular case. So instead, what they did was they stirred up the local populace against the Christians by playing on their cultural and racial prejudice. These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. Isn't it interesting? And when the gospel first came to Europe, it was violently rejected on the grounds that it was foreign, an insult to national religions and local culture. Indeed, that it was an Eastern religion brought by Jews to the West. Today, of course, it is often rejected as a Western religion on grounds that it is a threat to other mostly Eastern religions. Well, Paul was a Jew. That bit of the accusation was correct. But he wasn't preaching Judaism. He was preaching Christ. And he wasn't preaching an Eastern version of Christ. Or he wasn't preaching a Western version of Christ. There were no such things. He wasn't preaching his own national gods and touting their superiority to the gods of Rome. He was proclaiming the one true creator God, the God who is not the property of any one nation or race or culture, for there is only one God. In any event, ethnic pride and national culture are irrelevant to the question of whether the gospel is true or not. The reality is that the gospel challenges all cultures and especially our own. The charges brought against Paul and Silas were false, but that didn't matter, especially when people were trying to manipulate the law to silence Christians, as they continue to do and increasingly do today, and then create an enormous noise of their own by rousing the population into an angry mob, which is, again, a favorite tactic today to prevent proper discussion. And so without listening, without proper discussion, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison, beaten. And in so doing, the magistrates were breaking their own law. But for the moment, Paul would sort that out later. But for the moment, he took it. Because what he was interested in was not his own rights. It wasn't his own comfort. It was the spread of the gospel. And he reckoned, and Silas, do you know, we can, we can share the gospel here just as well as anywhere else. And they prayed and they sang hymns. I don't know if there are any Stuart Tynan numbers being sung in the prison. That would be exciting. But they sang hymns and they, they prayed and the other prisoners were listening, and at midnight there was a providential earth tremor. Shook the prison so hard that it toppled the restraints and made it possible for the prisoners to escape. But this is not an escape story. 
This is a salvation story. No one escaped. Not Paul, not Silas, nor any other prisoner. They could have, but they deliberately did not. Don't harm yourself, Paul cried out in the dark. And in the confusion to the jailer who was about to commit suicide as he thought the prisoners for whom he was responsible had escaped. We are all here. And it brought the jailer trembling on his knees before Paul and asking that wonderful question. What must I do to be saved? I remember a student so many years ago asked, would I have coffee with her? And I agreed. And uh, we had coffee. And uh, she looked at me across the table and she asked me that question. It's the first and only time in this country I've been asked the question just exactly as it was asked here. And I did the typical thing that Northern Ireland people do. And that is, well, what do you think about it? (laughs) This is the point of the story. All those links. God at work. The Spirit at work. Human agency at work. Bringing the threads together because this is a salvation story. God was interested in Lydia. He was interested in the spirit medium. He was interested in the jailer. And what seemed like a defeat with Paul and Silas in prison was now revealed to be God's strategy for reaching the jailer. What a wonderful strategy. How else was he going to hear? God knew him, knew his story, arranged to have Christian evangelists in his prison. And what a great strategy to shake the man old pagan jailer as he probably was. And this providential earthquake that took place that shook the prison, that shook his life. And he immediately sensed his vulnerability and he thought his life was over. And all those questions that come to a person in those circumstances and he's about to end his life. And then he sees something else. He sees the gospel. He doesn't just hear it. He sees it in the life of Paul and Silas, in their witness. What God is it who can inspire men to take a beating unjustly as we know and to pray and sing hymns and entertain the prisoners? What God is it that inspires these men not to be interested primarily in themselves and not to read this providential earthquake as, oh, this must be God telling us to get out of here. What kind of God inspires these men to love the jailer enough to stay and persuade the prisoners to stay? so that they could share Jesus with him. Radical hospitality. Amazing. And of course, the jailer, what must I do to be saved? It's echoed down through the years, and perhaps you're asking that question tonight. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is the same as it has always been. Let's not complicate it. 
The answer is the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Sometimes I think the simplicity of this is lost, especially in a religious culture like ours. Certainly there's huge confusion in the secular world as to what faith is, because people in the secular world basically think that faith is believing where there is no evidence. Or even worse, faith is believing against the evidence. Well, it's just manifestly false, but it suits the secular and atheist narrative to maintain and promote the fiction. But for others, they see faith as a kind of a special religious capacity given to some but not given to others. And if you don't have it, there's nothing you can do to get it. But faith simply means trust. Faith is a response, a response to what is presented to us. And God has gifted all of us with the ability to exercise trust. Without it, ordinary life would be virtually impossible. God has not asked anyone to believe without providing evidence. He has spoken. He has revealed himself in the intricacy and power and brilliance of creation, in our moral conscience that gets us accusing others and excusing ourselves, in his interventions in history, in his word, and supremely in his son. God demonstrated to the world that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah by raising him from the dead as the central fact of history. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by God's word. You have heard Faith is a response to God's revelation of himself, to his word, to the evidence he has given, as Paul later was to write. If you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like Lydia was. Like the jailer was like their households were. They believe in Jesus. So as I finish this evening, what about you? None of us here by accident. God knows your name, your story, and perhaps tonight you sense God's timing, God speaking, God opening your heart I want to encourage you to respond and to definitively entrust yourself to Jesus as Lord. Perhaps like the jailer, there's been an earthquake in your life. Some sudden shocking, at least to you, never to God, occurrence that has shaken your life and knocked the props away, and made you sense your vulnerability. God knows you. He knows your story. He's speaking. You have heard his word. And perhaps then there are those of us, many of us here, who've responded to the message. God has opened our hearts. Have you opened your home? 
Have you opened your life? Have I? If you read on the story of Acts, you'll discover how homes, singles, couples, in houses, God used them to establish outposts, bases for the spread of this message which is spread across the world right to Corinth. Could you make a decision like that tonight? That up to now it's been a privatized thing and you've kept the world separate and yes, you give and yes, you attend church, but you've never joined the pieces together to see your life, not as a great evangelist necessary or a great apostle or anything else, but as a lady, as a business person who can put the pieces together and make things happen and see how that works and get engaged in God opening your home and your life to radical hospitality down which the gospel can flow to our world. House after house after house. There are, I believe, and I've believed for months, Huge decisions to be made here tonight. And that's now between you and God. There's a prayer tent over to my right. The band is going to come up now as I pray to give us an opportunity to pause, to reflect, to respond to God in the way that you need to. And perhaps you would like some help to do that. There are mature believers in the tent, sensitive, who will not pry, who will not ask for a personal invitation, but are there to listen and to help and to talk with you and to guide you. I want to encourage you to take that moment. This could be a moment for a Lydia decision, for a turning of the tide against the earthquake in your life. Because he also, the jailer, opened his home to the gospel. Two homes in a pagan city. What an opportunity, what a calling. So as you think and consider, let me pray. And as I pray, if you want to move across the prayer tent, please do that. And during the next song, please do that. So let's all just bow our heads so that we give people privacy so that they can just make that decision and slip quietly out to the tent or even where you sit. Dear Lord Jesus, we are amazed at your great love, at the intricacy, not simply of creation, but at the intricacy of your plan. Thank you. You gave yourself for us. You laid down your life, the only solution to the alienation that we instinctively feel in this universe because our rebellion has cut us off from you. You laid your life down to be the bridge to bring us back. Sinful, rebellious, people. Oh Lord, we pray that this would be an opportunity for so many of us this evening 
to respond to your work in us, to respond to your opening of our heart by committing our lives to Jesus and our lives to Jesus, all of our lives. This includes everybody here. And that we'd use the words of these songs that we sing in our final time of praise as genuine response, as genuine worship, as we bow our heads and our hearts before the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whose name we pray. Amen.